Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business, where I talk with interesting people sharing life and business experiences to entertain, engage, build community, and provide information to help others succeed. If you're interested in learning more about one of our guests or how we are helping business owners generate wealth and build businesses they can sell or succeed at Exit Your Way, you can find more information on our website, ExitYourWay.com, or by contacting me directly, Damon at ExitYourWay.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone. Welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I am your host, Damon Pistolka, and I am so excited today for our guest because we have Devin Miller here from Miller IP Law. Devin, thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm definitely excited to be here. Yeah, well, we we got to talking. We're we're a, a minute or so behind. We got to talking, and we uh, we're we're covering some stuff we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be a lot of fun. But Devin. We always start off by understanding a little bit more about our guests and the background and how you got where you are today. So could you share a little bit of that with us? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a story in and of itself. So I'll try to give the condensed version so that doesn't take up the, the whole podcast. So, you know, I would say my theme throughout or vast majority of my life, at least since high school, college time frame, has always been a, a love of startups and small businesses and entrepreneurship. And so... I went off to, or just as a background on education, I ended up getting four degrees, which my wife always jokes is three degrees too many, but I went off to undergraduate and got a electrical engineering degree as well as a, a Mandarin Chinese degree. Um, and then when I went off to graduate school, I ended up going and doing an MBA as well as a law degree. And it, really the reason was, is because I got done with undergraduate, main focus was on electrical engineering. And I said, hey, I like electrical engineering, but I don't want to be an electrical engineer in yeah. the sense that I didn't want to, you know, a typical electrical engineer, they, you're on a, you're a small cog in a big wheel, you're working on a mm -hmm. project for a long period of time, and you don't really get to have any say in, or in the project until the end of your career. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. So, so with that, I kind of had two paths I could take. One was either entrepreneurship and business, or the other was I also found intellectual property on the law side uh, to be interesting. So Rather than pick one or the other, I just went straight down the middle, did both, got the MBA, got the law degree, started a business or did a startup while I was in the law school and MBA school, also worked as an attorney and uh, really been chasing both of those ever since and uh, always uh, pushing my career to where it allows me to do both at the same time. So that's that's about as quick as an introduction as I could reasonably do. Four degrees. There we go. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had a friend of mine when I went to school that actually he got a mechanical engineering degree, but then got his law degree and, and was in patent law after that. And he really, he really enjoyed it because he thought that, that having a bit of technical background, you could kind of understand these patents a bit better and do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and the interesting, so in order to even be a patent attorney, you have to have a, a technical undergraduate. So when you go into patent law, you get a, or take an extra bar exam. So a typical attorney, you go to law school, okay. you graduate, you take a state bar exam and you go practice in that state with the patent or with patent law. In order to be a patent attorney, you have to take a set, second bar exam, which I hated worse than the actual bar exam. Or it was less fun. And so um, in order to even qualify or to sit for that uh, patent bar, you have to be um you have to have a technical undergraduate. So engineering, okay. mechanical, electrical, chemical, computer, 
some math, some or physics and that, but you have to have. So anytime you meet a uh, patent attorney, they're always going to have a technical undergraduate because basically the patent office is saying you have to have that in order to understand the technology well enough to represent clients. That's awesome. That's awesome. I didn't realize that. I want to say hello to, we've got Inger here today and she said, good evening to Devin and I. And then she also said four degrees. I know. Woo. <laughs> Woo. We got Kazi here today. All right. Thanks, Kazi. Um, so four degrees. What? And, and you said love of startups. You started up somewhat while you're in college yet. So what really draws you into startups? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's even why, why I have my own law firm now. So I worked for a big law for a while or for a period of time for about six, uh, six years, worked for big, or big law firms, huge corporations. And really, I like startups because at the end of the day, you get a captain your own ship. So you get to make the decisions. It's up to you. You either sink or swim by your own skill sets. And you also get to make the decision. So you get to own up to them. I mean, now that's bad if you make bad decisions and it goes under, but at least you get to have that freedom yeah. and that ability to say, hey, this is, you know, for me, it was as an example in the, the legal field was, I don't know if I understand or, or agree with how everything is set up and done. Sometimes I think it should be done differently or done um, and with a different perspective. And so if I'm at a, a large law firm, you have a lot of partners, you have a lot of people that have say, decision by committee, everything moves slow and that just doesn't fit with my personality. And so whether it's the legal side or whether it's the other startups I've been a part of, I just like to be able to say, hey, I have a good idea. I want to be able to implement it. And I don't want to have to go through a lot of chains of command and I have to go through decision by commitment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is. Yeah. With your experience in the bigger firms and bigger corporations, that is a, a big deal um, compared to, like you said, a, a little piece, a little cog in a big wheel or compared to what you said, but it's yeah, so true. So true. That is one of them. Oh, we got Matt Goosey here today. He said he's got three patents, but hackers should have them for the best team. <laughs> oh, yeah. Unfortunately, Matt, Matt's a Wisconsin guy, if you can't tell. And uh, we'll, we'll let's just we'll just excuse him for that. <laughs> hey, everybody's got to have a team they root for. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. That's for sure. That's for sure. So when we're we're. Talk a little bit more about this. I mean, you, you, you've got some deep roots where you're at. I think this is cool too. So tell us a little bit about your, the area where you're at. And yeah, so I'll, I'll claim the area where I'm at is a place I grew up. So technically where I have our office right now is about one city over. It's still really close, but where I grew up was uh, in a smaller town. It was a farming community. It's called uh, Morgan, Utah. Um, population probably at least when I grew is growing way too fast now. But when I grew up, it was two or three thousand somewhere around there. Yeah. Now we we're by big cities. I'm not way out the booties, but you know it's a small or farming community. But yeah. so my my family or has roots honestly to the foundation or founding of that community. So you go back to about the 1850s, and you had some of my ancestors that uh, founded the community started it and actually started as just a sawmill where they got it started and they er, and, and grew from there and then it grew into a farming community um, but i grew up really kind of doing i wasn't i wouldn't say myself as a farmer because farmers have to work a lot harder than i do but i i grew up on a on a on a, on a farm where i was always helping my grandpa whether it was haul hay herd the cows you know move everything around shovel mm -hmm. all of the 
waste products of the animals and everything yeah, else. Plenty of that. And so it gave me an appreciation both for people that work hard as well as to get a good work ethic. And so while I didn't or, or keep on with the farming tradition as much, it, it was one where it kind of cemented it where, you know, I had generations of farmers that worked hard and learned those lessons that got passed down to me. And it's one where now I, I try and even though I don't do as much farming, I try and pass it the, that down to my kids as well and, and have that same mm-hmm. or give them some of those same opportunities. Yeah, we were talking about that. So so you've got four kids. You said they're ages seven to twelve and you are and, and we're gonna get into Miller IP law and talking <laughs> about that. But talk talk about this. You're launching a food truck with your kids. I am. So and that's what everybody's like attorney doing a food truck how does that and it has nothing to do with the legal although i did file a trademark for the name of the business so technically i did tie it back into intellectual property but no i so i have four kids as you mentioned oldest is my son who's 12 youngest is my daughter who is seven and uh four or three daughters one son and you know i was always looking so i wish i'd had more entrepreneurial opportunities as growing up now worked on a farm, great experience, but I never really had an ability to start my own business or to be involved with it to a young age until really I got off to college and even graduate school. Mm -hmm. And I wanted my kids to have an opportunity to do that. Now, they're not going to be an attorney. And while they do help me out with some projects here in the office and uh, help to be some of the cleaning crew and that, they really haven't had an opportunity to do anything entrepreneurial. So I was kind of always figuring out what could that be? And I landed on, uh, of all things, a food truck. And I thought, hey, that'd be fun. They would get to interact with people. So they get to learn how to communicate, how to talk, mm-hmm. get to work hard, figure out new ideas and everything else. And so I started uh, a food truck it's called the Bear Den. Um, and it is one where, man, it take, it's taken way longer than I anticipated it would. All of the government bureaucracy slows down everything. But yeah. um, we're getting ready to launch it here probably in the next three to four weeks. And uh, so our idea is basically during the winter, um, we're going to do build your own hot chocolate. So you get to choose a flavor, you get to choose the toppings, you get to choose everything. And it's kind of a build your own hot chocolate bar. And then in the summer, we're going to flip that and we're doing build your own popcorn. So they get a popcorn in the summer, hot chocolate in the winter, and then there'll be a few things. And so then um, I've, you know, my kids have been there all along the way. We started out converting an old Airstream 70 or 1972 Airstream over into a food truck. So we did that. We actually uh, customized it, cut out our part of the wall so that people could come up to it. They got to mm-hmm. help out with that. They got to help out with the decorations. They got to help out with hanging the shelves and everything else. So it's been a fun opportunity. I don't know if we'll make exorbitant amounts of money, but I think it'll be a fun opportunity for one, them to work with that and, and two, for them to um, get that kind of entrepreneurial experience at a, at a younger age. Yeah, I think that is, that is really cool and really cool something you can do with your kids. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun no matter what, and it has been. It sounds like so. Already uh, been a fun experience, though. So yeah. Only more to come. Yeah, yeah. Well, now now let's 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 move forward from that fun stuff to the fun stuff about Miller IP law and IP law in general. So, um, what? I mean, I looking at your website, the one thing I was I was noticing about your website and I really appreciate is you've really taken a I don't know if it's it's definitely different from big law firms like their approach, because you have a DIY option, you have a consulting, you know, a consultative kind of approach option where I could talk to you for a while. Let's figure out some things. 
or you can you can go hey here's a one-time fee kind of option for you to do a trademark or whatever it is in the ip what what really inspired you to go that way and and give people these options like this yeah so as i mentioned just as a, a quick rewind and i'll get to your question so i yep. work for large law firms am law top 100 firms i work for clients intel and red hat and amazon ford and others and large law firms have their way of doing it. And I basically got to a point in my career, I said, I want to focus on startups and small businesses mm -hmm. because they're oftentimes kind of more overlooked in the marketplace. Law firms generally, while they may sometimes service them, aren't really set up for them. And so part of that approach was if I'm going to focus on startups and small businesses, I'm going to look and see what are some of their pain points or areas that I can improve and areas that can be different. So when I set it up, you know, I set up the really when and, uh, and it's gone through a few iterations, but I set up the law firm website to almost have a kind of an e-commerce type of a feel, which is different than mm -hmm. most law firms. Generally, when you go to a law firm, it's going to have a pretty picture, going to tell you the name of the thing. You can go and you can find out all about the attorneys and what service they offer. And that's about yep. it. And I said, you know, people are generally, especially if you're, you know, less familiar with the legal industry, you're looking for how much is this going to cost? How long is it going to take? What are my options? Can I talk with someone right now? Is it going to cost me something to even ask a few questions? Is even figure out if I need to do all you know to do anything? And so that's kind of the the problems that I went to, went about solving. So on the website, we have all of our flat fees. We do most everything, not quite everything. Sometimes you get into litigation or need some hourly work. We'll do it on a on an hourly basis, but by and large, everything's on flat fees. We put that all on the website. Now you can go to the website. You can actually know before you even talk to an attorney how much they're going to charge, how long it's going to take. I, you know, I don't ever claim to be something that's nobody else has done out there because it's a big world with a lot of people. But the general law firm doesn't have that. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other thing that you know is always interesting is you know generally when you reach out to a law firm, you get a front desk. You have to go through in a sec or a secretary, and then they have to talk with you, transfer them, see if you can schedule. It usually takes like a week to get on their schedule, and you have to go in their office and everything else. And you know, most of the time, you're wanting to talk with someone when you want to talk with someone. So I also set up the website that you can schedule. I mean, you can schedule if you were to go on my or on the website right now, and you to go to talkwithdevin.com, uh, which it just links uh, to my calendar. You can schedule on my calendar for 15 minutes after the podcast ended. Because as yeah. long as it's available on my calendar now, if I have other meetings, it will block yep. it out. But I said, hey, why don't we have availability so people can actually connect with you and contact you same day. They can schedule something. They can do it remotely. They don't even have to come in the office and they can just get a few questions answered and go yeah. that, that route. And the last one, and then I'll take a pause because I've already got or, or, or hit on a whole bunch of things. Oh, good stuff, dude. Good stuff. The DIY stuff. And the DIY stuff was kind of, again, out of that working with startups and small businesses and while we try and offer, you know, competitive prices and a good process, even some startups and small businesses still can't afford an attorney, even at our rates. And so we said, Hey, you know, there typically there's just really a couple options. One, you can either just try and do it all yourself, learn the legal thing. And most of the time that or that doesn't end up well, and it usually causes more problems than their solutions. You can go to a, you know, site like legal zoom or rocket lawyer, and they are, better than not or better than doing it yourself but not by a whole lot i mean mm -hmm. most of the time you go through them it's hard to understand you don't know really what's going on you can't you know to talk with an attorney is a, a is an issue and everything else and so i said hey if we're going to service startups and small businesses why don't we have our offer some diy tools 
where we can have any videos integrated. We can walk them through it. They have an option to uh, connect with an attorney for an hour just to ask questions and all those things and really try to build it so it's a alternative option to uh, an attorney if they can't afford our fees. Now, attorney, I don't claim it to be a replacement for an attorney. I, we, you know, attorney, it, it's not going to be a, a entire replacement, but it offers them a better alternative option if they can't afford our fees. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, and this is, this is really cool. As I was looking, it's, it's very cool what you've done because you've followed some of the, some of the things that, that I read and, and learn, have learned from other, I mean, pretty prominent marketers, right? Because getting your pricing on your website mm -hmm. is the, one of the biggest things I think that, that uh, professionals can do just because, it allows people to self-select, right? So if, Hey, yep. that sounds reasonable to me. Let's talk. It doesn't sound reasonable to me. Well, I can look at your DIY option and go, Hey, that's where I'm at right there. Boom, hit it, go. Yep. And, and you, you give people alternatives because, and, and many businesses, and I think the legal, the legal uh, uh, industry is one of them is we're trying to service customers that are Damon's age, but, <laughs> most of our business is coming from people that's Devin's age. And we yep. really need to understand that and, and start, start to cater to that and get more of a self-serve self-select uh, option. And I just think it's cool what you've done there. Just think it's cool. Um, no, I, and I agree with you. And I said, it, it's interesting because I think that, you know, the legal, legal industry, like some other, is just so slow moving, so slow to adapt everything. They really just stuck yeah. in their ways and, Really, and you know, it's irony is, is you could go back 200 years and other than the in advent of the computer, internet and email, they're doing it about the same way. And so it just seems like, you know, you can either stay how it's been done for 200 years or you can adapt and, and make it better and improve it. But it's going to take some work. And most of the time, attorneys just don't want to put in the work, but I love it. And it, make, it makes it fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you said too, you built your, and after thinking and going through your website, you built it with an e-commerce type feeling. You're right. It does. It has the drop down menus, the way it, you know, you can select like you're selecting an item. It's cool. It's cool. I really thought that's worth it for us to talk about a little bit because people will see that in your website and you're helping people in all 50 States too. Correct. Yeah. So nice okay. thing about intellectual property is it's on the federal level. So I have more clients outside of Utah, I think, now than inside of Utah. And we have them in almost, if not every, all 50 states close to it. And it yeah. makes it nice. But what we also had to do is we were doing Zoom and virtual meetings and calendar schedules all before COVID hit and before that was cool. Yeah. Because, again, I'm I'm trying to be where the, the startups and the small businesses are at. And yeah. if all I say is you can come to my nicely adorned, huge high rise office with my wood, you know, wood paneling, then I'm only getting a very small subsection of the clients I really could be. So that's kind of across the board. We're trying to set it up to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And you, yeah, that's very cool. So as, as you're looking at it, so if we got some people that are, that are doing their startup here. What are some of the first things that you you see commonly that this the startup should be thinking about slash protecting when you were talking about IP law? Yeah, and, and I think it's a good level set because, I mean, sometimes people don't even know what a trademark versus a patent is. And they'll come in and oh, they'll yeah. say, hey, I need a I need to protect my invention with a trademark. And I said, well, I'd love to protect your invention that falls under patent. So it's a quick level set just for the audience, you know. Yeah. 
give them an, an overview as to what intellectual property is. So when you hear the term intellectual property, it's really an umbrella term. It includes a few different things underneath it um, that encapsulates all of those and just is referred to as intellectual property. And generally, it, it, it refers to patents, trademarks, copyrights. So if you're to break that down, patents are going to go towards inventions, something that has a functionality, mm -hmm. something that does something. Trademarks are going to go towards branding. So name of a company, name of a product, a catchphrase, a logo, all those things are under branding and fall under trademarks. And copyrights are going to be for creatives. And so that can be a picture, a sculpture, a painting, a photograph, a book, a video. All of those things tend to fall under copyrights. And so probably the first thing that they should you know, realize is the difference between each one of those oh, yeah. and where their business is. And realize, you know, it's not only, hey, do we have a brand, but is the brand part of our business? In other words, you know, sometimes when people will come in and say, I need everything. And I says, OK, yeah. well, we can do everything, but it's going to be probably a bigger budget than you want. But let's whittle it down to what is your what's the value of your business is it do you guys have a really cool product that's unique and innovative out in the marketplace and that's what drives your value then go for more of a patent if you're a service-based business and really it's all about branding and you can uh you know have a better reputation and get better reviews than everybody else then you're going to look for trademarks and so that's kind of where they you start to break it down okay good good and and on the patents there are different kinds of patents, right? Because I've heard of a process patent before, or I, I forget, a product or design patent. So what what are the, can you explain that a little bit so we, we all sure. have a better understanding? Yeah, so the vast majority of the time when you hear someone say a patent, they're usually referring to what's called a utility patent. So a utility okay. patent is, it can be a process patent. It can, you know, they can really cover a lot of ground. It can be mechanical, electrical, software, pharmaceuticals, food, you know, everything in between. But it's really, if break it down, utility patents are anything that does a functionality. You're wanting to cover or get coverage for that invention for how it works, how it functions. Now, you, to your point, there is also what's called a design patent. And a design patent is going to be something that is non-functional, but it has an, a unique aesthetic nature that is different than what's out there. So I'll give you an example of a design patent. You know, you have iPhone out there and you think, oh, well, iPhone has a whole bunch of utility patents, which they do on the antenna and on the battery and on the storage. Mm -hmm. But one of their design patents, although their design has since changed, but for a long time was how the phone actually looks, the curved edges, the circular button in the middle and all those things. It was a unique design and it was not a functional, meaning you could put the button anywhere, but how it looks really was protecting that you know, that design. And so you can do a design patent if it's more on the aesthetic fun or aesthetic nature of the product and kind of the look and feel to it. And then if it's anything to do with functionality, falls under utility patent. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, when you talk about trademarks, so so patents, first of all, the utility, that's more, it's going to do something functional and do it. The design is more for an aesthetic thing that that is part of your brand or critical to your brand. So trademarks, the same thing. There's different trademarks. What's this little, you see the, the R in there and some don't have it. And, you know, if what's that whole thing about trademarks? Yeah, and, and I'll dispel or dispel the myth myth first. Just because it doesn't have an R or TM doesn't mean it's not trademark. It just means that they didn't put that as part of it. And so yeah, there so isn't now there's benefits to putting it there, but there is no legal requirement that you have to in order to have a trademark, put an R or a TM by whatever you have registered or or trademark. 
And so mm-hmm. sometimes people say, well, they don't have the R or the TM. So that's not trademarked, right? And I said, well, that's not necessarily true. Yeah. They can still have it. And the reason why you put that is it gives people a legal notice that, hey, I believe this is a trademarkable term. I believe that I have rights here. And if you violate them, I can get increased damages. So a lot of times people put it there because they want to get increased damages if they ever have to go free for infringement. But you don't have to have it. Now, with that said, you know, there is a typically three of them, two of them are trademarks, but three that kind of get confused. So you have the TM, you have the R with the circle, and then you have the C with the circle. So the TM is basically, hey, I don't have a registered trademark, meaning I haven't gone through the federal registration process, but I think I have a brand and I have what are called some common law rights or state law rights. So I have you mm-hmm. have some very limited rights by the in, by being the first user of a brand. You do have some very limited common law rights that are associated just by the use of it. So that's kind of what a TM means. It's yeah. hey, I don't, I haven't, I haven't gone after an actual federal registration, but I think I still have some trademark rights here, and so I'm putting you on notice. The R with the circle is going to be for a registered trademark. That means I have gone through the trademark process with the federal government. It's been examined, and it's now a registered trademark. Now, some people put the R by mistake, and they don't actually have a registered trademark. But if you're doing it right, it should be R as a registered trademark. And then sometimes people also put a C and C is different. C is for copyrights. You know, the C with a little circle, that's mm-hmm. for copyrights. And so sometimes people intermix them or get them confused. But if you're to do TM, it's, hey, I think I have a trademark, but I haven't registered it. R is for a registered trademark. C is if it's for copyright. Awesome. Awesome. Great. I'm, I'm so glad I asked that because I know a lot of people, you see these all over. And I, um, I didn't honestly have a clear understanding of all this. So that's great. That's great. So what are some other things that we should, um, I'm kind of down that road. This is so cool to learn this part of it. So when you talk about, let's just talk about a patent. Mm-hmm. I mean, timing wise, how long does it take to get a design patent? If you're, if you're ready to go, I mean, and you got to have a lot of stuff I know ready to go to do it, but say I'm, I've got everything ready to go. How long yeah, does it take so, to get it registered? Yeah. So let's say you had the, all the designs in place. And so, and that can, in some people get mistaken. You don't have to be the world's best artistic artist and have it perfectly mm-hmm. shown. As long as you can have a reasonable representation, us and most law firms, they'll have a draftsman that will formalize it and make it better. So as long as you can adequately get, whether it's hand sketches, drawings, notepad, PowerPoint, whatever, just be able to convey it, then you are you can at least have the minimum threshold. And really, when you're looking at whether it's a design patent or a, a utility patent, it's going to be the same standard for whether or not you're ready to get going, which is what they call in legal terms, conceptual reduction to practice. Now, what does that mean in, re- in normal terms? That basically means you're able to convey the invention in a, in a to a level that somebody in the industry, given enough time, money, and effort, could go and replicate it. So if it's a okay. design, you can say, okay, I've got the design narrowed down enough that I can actually show what it is, show what the design is for the design patents. If it's for a utility patent, hey, I've got enough of the details that I could go out and explain it to an engineer as an example, and they'd be able to say, okay, yeah, I get it. Enough time and money and effort, I could go and out and make that. And so... With that, if you kind of hit that first initial threshold of I can explain it to that level, then you could you could potentially get started. Doesn't always mean you should get started, but mm-hmm. you could get started. Um, now, if you're to look at kind of timing, once you file a patent application, I'll just I'll hit on both utility and design just to round out the conversation. Mm-hmm. 
you know, design patent, generally once you file it, it's going to go through an examination process because examiner and both for utility and design are going to look and see whether or not it's patentable. So design patent, once you file it to get to the top of the queue to start with, uh, you know, get start the examination, you're usually nine to 12 months after the time you file it. To get all the way through the process, you know, we'll go back and forth the examiner, define what's unique, what's patentable, what's different. On a design patent, you're typically 12 to 16 months, somewhere in there. Um, now, for a utility patent, it's always it's a bit longer. So to get started with the examination for utility patent, about 12 to 18 months before you get to the top of the queue for examination. Now, there are ways if you really want to get it started earlier, government will or let you get to the more towards the front of the line if you want to pay some expedited fees um, to have a quicker examination. But I'm just giving you the average or the normal mm -hmm. normal path. Um, utility patent, 12 to 18 months to start the examination. You're probably saying another six to nine months to get all the way through. So usually you're looking at 18, 24 months to get through the whole process on average. Now, I'm giving the averages. I've had clients have gone through quicker. I had clients that have gone through slower, um, but that kind of gives you an eye, or, uh, a frame of mind as far as the, how long it, it typically takes. Very good. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think, you know, th these are things that walking out the street, people don't know, you know, you just don't understand it and you're in it every day. So now I've been involved before where you, uh, people have talked about this before, I've got an idea. I've been working on it a while. I've sketched it up. I've done this. I may have built a prototype, but I never filed a patent. And mm -hmm. someone else comes out and files a patent. But my stuff was done 10 years ago. And I forget what they call it, but it's it's something about when I when I'm developing something and I might have it, you know, the idea, the concept how do we really tell in this process if you would if you had filed a patent on something first is mm -hmm. there a way if i if i was like hey they just patent that but i've been working on it for five years are you just kind of out of luck because <laughs> somebody else did it first pretty much yes is, is the shortest okay, okay. I, didn't I'll, I'll, I didn't know i'll illuminate or, or, or yeah. illuminate on it because there's also yeah, some yeah. myths that come along with that so yeah Going back just as a, a little bit of reciting history, 2000, before 2013, it was a bit of a different answer. So okay. prior to 2013, and that's why you'll see myths going and everything on our bulletin boards and chats and everything. People give all sorts of myths and you get a lot of wrong information. But pre-2013, the U.S. was one of the few countries that was a first to invent country, meaning to get a patent, you had to be the first to invent. After 2013, they switched over and joined basically the rest of the world or most of the rest of the world in being a first to file system. So okay. pre-2013, first to invent, post-2013, first to file. And so that's where a lot of the myths come because yep. before 2013, if you invented it first and you could legitimately prove it, you would be able to go out and you could predate it, you could file it and be able to kind of reach back to when you started to work on it. Yeah. And, and that's where some of the myths you'll hear kind of like a poor man's patent, where all I got to do is write down my invention, sketch it all out, put it in a self-adramped envelope and never open it and make sure it's postmarked and I will be fine. That was more true. It wasn't very true, but it was more true post or pre-2013. Mm -hmm. Now, after 2013, it's, nope. worth about as much, it's worth about as much as a stamp on the envelope. So yeah. 
Okay, good. So that's so it's that's the kind first of where you file. look at it. Is you know, so you if it's really set up to be a first to file system now. So whoever is, unless you can prove like they stole your idea, they got access, mm-hmm. and you know they broke into your lab and they took all your designs, and you can go prove it in court. Then you have that rare exception, but for 99% of people, it's whoever files on the invention first is going to be the one that is a presumed inventor. That's awesome. That's awesome to explain that because I I know. So, you know, what you're really saying though, is if you got something you think you should be patented, you should probably get to patenting. Yeah. Or at least start talking about it. Now, okay. and I'll, I'll caveat one other thing that people yeah. oftentimes aren't aware of that is a lot of times it, it, it becomes a, a catch for a lot of businesses is you only, once you put something out in the public, so you put it on a website, you do a trade show, you pitch it to investors, you offer it for sale, any of those things, you uh, start a time clock ticking where you have one year from the earliest time you put it out in the public within which you can file a patent. If you miss that window, you've now just donated your or your invention to the public, meaning anybody can do it and you're no longer able to patent on it. So the worst case scenario is I'll have clients that come into my office and say, hey, I started this business about three years ago. You know, we started out, we were bootstrapping it. We didn't have to, or time to do IP. We've been selling for a couple of years and we're finally like to get around to doing a patent. And I get, you know, then I get the less than fun conversation saying, yeah, That's awesome. Your business is doing well. I'm glad it's uh, being profitable. Unfortunately, we're not able to help you with the patent because you missed that one-year window. Awesome piece of information right there. So if you got something that you think you should be patenting, you need to get a patent within one year or you just donated it to the public domain. Yep, exactly. Boom, drop that one. There's a mic drop right there, man. Wow. So he just, I mean, this is so good. I mean, we talked about the timeline of patents. We talked about the, the whole, you know, prior art or whatever the heck they used to call it, you know, before 2013, it was the first to invent, but now it's first to file. And then you drop the other bomb right on there. So you've got a time clock. You got one year if you, if you put it out in the public to, to get it done or else it's public, uh, public information. Yep. So, Wow. Then another thing I've heard of before too, and I was, I'm just, I've so many good questions are coming to mind now, dude. So I provisional patent, what's, what's a provisional patent? We used to talk about provisional patents and people talked about what's that really do? Is it anything anymore? It, yeah, no, it provisional patents are still uh, alive and well, and it's still a great option. So provisional patent is a type of utility patent application. So when you get into a utility patent, you have two different types of patents you can go for. One's called a provisional patent application. The other one's called a non-provisional patent application. So a provisional patent application is a less expensive one-year placeholder application. It gets you patent pending, gets you date of invention, and gives you a year to decide whether or not you want to pursue a full patent application or not. When you get towards the end of the year, you either decide, yep, I want to now pursue a full patent application, which is called a non-provisional, or at the end of the year, you say, hey, business didn't work out, didn't do as well in the marketplace, mm-hmm. or I don't have the money. And if you don't, you know, if you don't pursue it any further, it's basically disappears as, as if you never filed it. So provisional patent applications are usually are a good option a lot of times for really two scenarios. One is if you have a limited budget. So if you're saying, hey, I don't have the budget to uh, afford a full patent application right now, but I want to protect what I'm doing as we continue to invest and and develop it. Provisional patent application is a good one on the budgetary. The other one, a lot of times it fits in is, hey, we're pretty early on in our our invention or product. 
And we'd like, you know, we still have a lot of R&D research and development, figuring mm -hmm. things out, but we're on to something and we want to make sure what we've done right up to till now is still protected. Why would we take the next year and we continue to develop and iterate and, and finalize a product? And so that's where a lot of times provisional patent applications come in as it gives you that one year placeholder to, to be able to either save up the budget and or to further develop mm -hmm. non-provisional awesome. is just your full patent application yeah that is now the typical one goes through the examination process can issue as a full patent but that's kind of the what the, where the provisional comes in oh so cool thanks this is this is just awesome it's awesome this clearing up some of the questions just really giving us a great education on on ip law and patents now let's go into trademarks a little bit because i i want to understand the trademarks you got you said uh the tm no no registration common law rights and and the the r it's been examined and registered so what's it what's it take to get a trademark timing i, I mean how long is it to do it and what do you what should we be trademarking yeah so a few good questions i'll ask the or answer the easier one first which is timing yeah. So typically to get through the trademark process, I always give kind of, if everything goes perfectly, how long it mm -hmm. takes. And if, you know, if you, if you have to go back and forth and argue with the trademark office, what it takes, if you go straight through, you're probably seven to eight months from the time you file the trademark application, assuming it, it goes pretty smoothly and you don't really have any issues to address. Um, if you have, if you get some rejections or you have to do some clarifications, go back and forth with the trademark office, you're usually more like, 10 to 12 months, somewhere in that okay. time frame. So generally low end, seven months, high end, 12 months. And I've had some that have gone two years and some that have taken four or five months. And so there's always exceptions, but that's kind of yeah. the general thing. Yeah. Now, the, the one other thing to, to think about is, you know, what can you trademark? Well, you can trademark a lot with brands. And so you can do the name of a company, name of a product, catchphrase, logo, um, you can do some of the weird ones. You can do smells. So the the, the smell of Play-Doh, that's technically trademark. Um, you wow. can also do, there's a smell of money that they used to pump into casinos. That's typically or technically trademark. You can also do sounds. Like if you're to do the old AOL, you got mail, you know, that old, mm -hmm. um, that would, uh, that one was uh, a trademark one because everybody knew it was associated with AOL. So generally it's going to be mostly the, you know, name of company, product, catchphrase, logo. But if there's something unique to your brand that, you know, there are ability, the other or are abilities to protect it or in a broader scope. The other one that's always fun, and I can't remember the football team, and I'm sure somebody will or know or, or, or remember, but they have a red field where the actually they paint the fed or their uh, field red instead of the typical green. And they actually have a trademark for the red field that they're the only ones that can do it. And so those are some of the fun ones. Yeah, um, you can do it. Now, the second yeah. thing to just uh, to consider is when you're looking at trademarks, what can you get a trademark on? So those are kind of the types of trademarks, things you yeah. can go after. What is trademarkable? It really boils down to the nice thing is, is with trademarks, the standard for whether or not you infringe someone else's trademark is the same standard for whether or not you can get a trademark, which is generally the main the main standard is what's called confusingly similar. Confusingly similar basically means would if somebody were to look at your brand that you're going after and another brand that's already out there, would they think it's associated, tied together, same business, related, or they'd be able to tell them apart? If they think it's going to be confusingly similar, they think there's going to be the same business, then you're not able to get a trademark. If they can reasonably tell them apart, then you can get a trademark on it. So as an example, if you wanted to go start a apparel and shoe company and you, the spelling of your company was N-I-K-E-E, -E, 
you probably got a problem with Nike because your two are confusingly similar. Now, if you're the first person to come up with Adidas, different than Nike, you're both in the same products, but you have two different brands. And so that's the one thing to consider. Yeah. The other one, um, just to consider on trademarks, is the other thing that you cannot trademark is what's called or merely descriptive. Merely descriptive basically means you can't just simply go get a trademark for a common term that everybody uses to describe the product or service. I'll give you a simple example. You wanted to go open up a fruit stand and you wanted to sell the world's best fruits. You wanted to sell apples. Well, let's say you named your fruit stand apple. You can't get a trademark on it because everybody refers to the fruit apple as an apple. Vice versa, if you wanted to go start a smartphone company, you want to do consumer goods, you can name an Apple because it, it doesn't, you know, it's not mm -hmm. a common term that people use to describe a smartphone. Now, maybe everybody calls them Apple now, but you get the idea. And so yeah. those are kind of your two standards, confusingly similar, merely descriptive. Generally, if you meet those standards, most of the time you're able to get a trademark. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is awesome. This is awesome, dude. I just, I'm, this is just like a treasure trove of information. And I want to, I want to stop here and just tell the people that are listening now, if you just got on, go back to the beginning because you have really laid out so much great information about patents and now trademarks and wow, just, just good stuff. Good stuff. So, and and we're getting we're getting a close to time here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be cognizant of your time and, and do this. I'm gonna ask a couple more questions. So what are some of the things that you see regret from startup when they when they do it? And then we talked about the one year it's in the public domain with the, with the patents now. I'm assuming that's a probably a kind of a common one, but what are some other ones where you see people go, Oh man, I should have would have could have done it differently. Yeah, I think that, or probably it goes right, probably right along with that. But on the trademark side, which is sometimes people will go out, they will put a ton of time, money, and effort in the brand. They'll never trademark it, and then they'll see oh. a competitor that comes along and starting to get close to them, and that, and they say, "Oh, I should probably go trademark that." Come to find out, the competitors already filed a trademark on it, and now they're at a much more disadvantage. Now there are some paths that you can still carve it out. But generally, the way that works is whoever files the trademark first is in a much better position. Now, I'll walk you through just the, the simple example. You do have some rights. So post the patents, basically, you miss a date unless they stole the invention from you and you can prove it. Yep. You're just kind of out of luck. Trademarks, you do have, when I said some common law rights, give you an example. Let's say you went out and started ABC Pizza and you're going to do deep dish pizza in Chicago. So you started your business, you do, you're doing awesome, and now you're looking to franchise. So you started, let's say, five years ago. And somebody came along during that five years and said, hey, I really like the brand ABC Pizza. So they went off to Los Angeles and started their own ABC Pizza. They were smart enough to file a trademark on it. And so now they are, they've gone through, got the trademark, or they're going through the process. And you say, hey, wait, they just took my brand. I want to stop them. Well, you're to a large degree out of luck. The way that that basically works is you can continue to use the trademark in Chicago where you're at for the current geographic location where you've been already selling your products prior to them filing a trademark. But you can never expand out of that. So you could Ooh. not. So they, the people that just filed the trademark in Los Angeles, they basically own every all the geographic areas outside of where you were at when they filed the trademark. And you own it inside. So you could keep selling in Chicago, didn't go anywhere else. They can sell everywhere across the US except for Chicago. So that's kind of one of the other things to be aware of. Wow. Is if somebody else comes along and files a trademark before you, it can 
significantly hamper your ability to expand or to franchise or to grow. Huge right there. Huge right there. Because if you, yeah, you spend all that time and effort in building a brand and then find out that someone on the other side of the country already has the brand, has it registered already, and they just stopped you from expanding. Yeah. Big deal. Ah, wow. Great stuff. Holy heck. So much, so much to learn about this. So, wow, I'm just, I'm floored by some of that. <laughs> Floor, well, just because you think about it, startups, you got all this other stuff to think about, and then you, and, and then something like this can come back and really bite you. So I'm going to go back through my notes because we, man, we covered so much good stuff. Well, I've got, I've got a couple things and we're not going to, we're not going to go on this long because everybody's talking about AI and, and, and the legal profession and, and lawyers. So what's, what's your take on how it's going to help you be a better lawyer? Yeah. And I think some of the concern with lawyers is, is whether or not it's going to put them out of business. Right. So everybody's, you know, there are areas of the law that people are just saying AI is going to take over now. Yeah. I don't think it's that smart yet. I don't think no. it's gotten to the point that it's going to be able to infuse that level of experience with one exception, which is you have some areas of law, which attorneys have gotten used to just being a template boilerplate. I fill in the blanks and it takes me five minutes and I charge them five hours of time. Yeah. So yep. I think that's the area where AI probably is going to step in first. And that kind of or sometimes has to do with simple wills and trusts, simple business mm -hmm. formations, simple agreements, not complex ones, but simple yep. ones where people have relied on templates for a long period of time. And the attorney just happened to know where to stick in the information for the vast majority of the legal or, or legal arena. I don't think the AI is there yet. Maybe I'll get there someday. I'll get smart enough and it will, it will replace all the attorneys and, then everybody will be happy because they don't have to deal with attorneys anymore. But until then, I think that the the main thing is it, it tends to be, I've seen a lot of applications in it being tools for an attorney. So to mm -hmm. reduce their time to cut down, hey, I need, I need, or I'm going to be working on this type of matter. And it typically takes me, you know, to draft it from scratch or five hours. And I'm just making the scenario up. Yeah. Now I go out and I have some of the AI assisted tools. And it cuts off an hour or two. Well, it's a benefit to the attorney because now it's taking them less time. Mm -hmm. They can either try and pocket the profit or if they want to be competitive, they can reduce their rates or yeah. reduce the amount of time it takes them. And that's where I see a lot of it is AI tends to be a lot of good tools that are people of coming up with implementing it that helps and assists attorneys, but hasn't gotten to the point where it probably replaces them. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Because I, th I I agree. I think that, and I think also that if you're em embracing it to make you better uh, at what you do, and you continue to to stay stay current with that, it'll help. But you said earlier too that the legal profession is a little bit slow to move, and that's probably a lot more of the fear than anything. No, I think huh. so. And I think you know you can either incorporate it into how you do things, incorporate it into your practice, and leverage it. Or you can just try and hold out as long as possible. And that, that's kind of the path that you can either go the Apple iTunes. Hey, we're going to change the industry. Or we can be the old, you know, the compact CDs, which nobody ever uses. But we tried to hold on as long as possible. It's coming either way. And so I always like to say, how can we adapt or use it to improve it, make it better and stay ahead of the competition? Because the, I think the legal industry, as the people that stay behind and, and lag behind are going to be the ones that are, are going to be ellipsed or, or going to be left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, Devin, I want to thank you so much for being here. And I just, Angela just dropped a, said hello, dropped in. Angela, thanks for being here today. But Devin, thanks so much, man. We're, we're, we're past our time already and I wish we did, weren't, but uh, got to let you go, man, and let you get on with your, your evening. But Devin, where can people get a hold of you? Give us your website and, and where people can get a hold of you. Absolutely. So I'll give them three ways to get a hold of me, depending on what or what they want to get a hold of Very me good. and how they want to get a hold of me. So I'll start with social media. You know, I know we have the law firm has presence in all the major social media platforms. The place that I am personally the most active is on LinkedIn. I just tend to like the business, you know, or type of approach to it. And so LinkedIn, if you want to connect up with me there, the easiest way is if you just go to meetmiller.com. That links right to my profile, makes it an easy way for you to connect up with me. So meetmiller.com. Nice. Second way is if you're saying, hey, I'd like I've got a few questions about IP, patents, trademarks or whatever like to we offer free 15 minute consultations where you can chat, chat through it. Um, you can get some questions answered. It's not going to answer every possible question you have within 15 minutes, but it gets you started um, to schedule some time for a free strategy meeting. You just go to strategymeeting.com and then you grab that links to my calendar and grab some time to chat. Nice. The last ways, if you just want to go and check out the website, see how we set it up, see our flat fees, check out our DIY tools, check out our all the information there. We have a lot of uh, great resources. You can just go to lawwithmiller.com and they can connect there. So as a quick review, connect with me on LinkedIn. It's meetmiller.com. Strategy meeting is at strategymeeting.com and or for just the general law firm webpage, it's at lawwithmiller.com. Awesome, dude. Awesome. Well, Devin, thanks so much for being here today, man. I, I just, this is a great conversation and, and I hope the listeners got half as much out of it as I did, because I know it's just, it's, it's on overload. I get I, three or four pages of notes here. Just thanks for being here. So, so appreciate it. Hey, I, I love being here. It was a fun conversation and uh, hopefully people got a, a few new ideas out of, or learned a little bit about the, the legal atmosphere uh, or out of it. So thank you for having me on. You bet. Well, we're going to shut her down for now. I just want to thank everyone that has listened to us today and the people that commented, you know, Inger and Angela, and we had near earth object and someone that I couldn't tell who it was, Matt, uh, just the Packers might be good this year. We just don't know. Kazi. And uh, thanks for being here today, Matt, just hang out for a moment. We'll be back again next week with the faces of business.